Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Rad Podcast. I am producer Brandon from the Rob Anybody and Don Show. Fresh off of a three-day weekend from Memorial Day. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. Got plenty of stuff done. All while paying tribute to the men and women who gave their lives to give us the freedoms to make poor decisions and enjoy the three-day weekends that we have. Uh, every weekend and every day, of course, you should be thinking about those that we've lost. But uh, in the uh, in the spirit of Memorial Day weekend and uh, a recent story out of Hawaii, which I'm going to be visiting this summer. I'm really looking forward to it. Two whole weeks in Hawaii for summer vacation, starting off at the Big Island and then the second week uh, closing it out with the 4th of July weekend in Maui, which is where our story uh, brings us to first year. In fact, a lot of the stories, all the stories that I have for you today are actually all about survival. And I thought it was kind of fitting based on uh, this amazing story about Amanda Eller, who is a, uh, a yoga instructor, physical therapist, a physical, she's just a physical guru. She went out there to do some spiritual uh, healing and, and actually get in there and do some yoga out in the, in the forest. And she ended up getting lost for 17 days. And, you know, if you think about somebody getting lost in the wilderness, you don't think, oh, yeah, after a couple of days, everybody kind of gives up. Everybody basically comes to the conclusion that we're not going to find him. But the community in Maui uh, all gathered together and wouldn't quit. And neither did Amanda Eller. Um, She actually says that she wished that she prepared more before she went out on the hike. Uh, She says, I should have had a cell phone with me. There's a reason we carry them all the time. In fact, she ended up leaving her cell phone back in the car uh, because she wanted to disconnect. Uh, She said she usually takes food, water, and other supplies when she hikes. But on this one, she decided not to pack. Be overprepared, she told other hikers. It's a friendly jungle. There's not much that'll get you, but still, be prepared. Obviously, she's talking about the jungles out there in uh, Hawaii, and there's really no predators out there. Uh, you know, wild boars, I think, are the only thing that comes close to a predator out there, and they can mang- mangle you up, but I don't think that uh, they're out to kill people. Um, so Amanda Seller actually, at Amanda Eller was actually asked if she had taken drugs or she drank alcohol before, before the hike, and she said she didn't consume any caffeine, drugs, or alcohol before she went out on the hike. After a reporter asked if she took anything that might have altered her mind, she says, I get a high off of life, and I get high off of people and heart, she says. Before starting the hike, she had a superfood smoothie and an RX bar, protein bar. Of course she did. And she sounds like a hippie, doesn't she? But didn't have any coffee or caffeinated tea. Everybody can have their theories, she said, of speculation about what led up to her disappearance. And she goes on to say that she let a voice guide her hike, but it didn't take her back to her car. Uh, Amanda said that she went out on a hike without her cell phone to connect to nature. And she got lost when the feelings that guided her on the journey didn't bring her back to her car. And I don't really know what happened. All I can say is that I got out of my car. It's like, you know, I have a strong sense of internal guidance, whatever you want to call it. A voice, spirit. Everybody has a different name for it. Heart, she said. She said she listened to those strong callings until she wanted to head back to her car. My heart was telling me, walk down this path, go left. Great, now go right. It was so strong. Go left, go right. I'm like, great, this is so strong that obviously when I turn around and go back to my car, it'll be just as strong when I go back. But it wasn't. Instead, it took her deeper and deeper into the woods. Stupid voice, shouldn't be listening to the voices in your head. Amanda Eller said she was grateful for her friends and her family and uh, complete strangers who kept this story alive and uh, continue looking for her. 
uh, that sense of pulling together, that sense of community, that sense of like ahana and family that we talk so much about here and that true aloha. Just speaking of the aloha spirit, ohana is the Hawaiian value of family and community. They could have just got, they could have just forgotten about me and said, another missing person, no big deal. I'm sitting from the standpoint of being in extreme gratitude for everybody caring so much to pull together and take time out of their own life to rededicate their focus of their own life towards me, whether they knew it or whether they knew me or not, she says. So she actually describes uh, in this interview how she ended up sleeping in boar, uh, boar tent dens. Um, and I mentioned that you know boars are really the only uh, big animals out there in that jungle that are would pose any threat because they have long tusks and everything, and they can mangle you severely. But they're actually uh, they're all a part of the ecosystem, and they're wild there. Uh, but they're also a delicious treat as well for the local Hawaiians. Um, Amanda talked about how she spent the night in a wild boar den and frequently followed their tracks as she fought, fought her way through the forest. These boars everywhere. And it's their home. I'm in their home. And so I was very respectful of that, she says. And then she described how she would occasionally see a nice-looking boar den that might keep her warm, but she got a message like, don't go in there. And so she stayed away. Other times she followed their paths and fi- uh, to find new dens. She added that this is the Chinese New Year. This is the year of the boar. I'm a boar. So I'm like finding myself sleeping in boars' homes. And they were like trailblazing for me. I'm sure she wasn't blazing before this. I know she said she didn't take any drugs, but I mean, come on, man. Amanda Eller, who uh, survived 70 days in a Hawaiian forest, said that there, uh, while her hope meter began declining as the days went on, she never felt alone or fearful. She says, this whole journey was extremely spiritual for me, and I never felt alone, and I never felt fearful. It was an opportunity to overcome fear of everything, she said. She said that the time that she spent in the forest was an opportunity to be stripped away of all the comforts of this modern world and see what she was left with. And there was such an amazing beauty in that. Eller said that she did begin to feel invisible days after she went missing when she started to see the helicopters, but they didn't see her. They were just going right over her. She would wave and... They would pass by and not see her, so she would lose hope. And she says that uh, your hope meter starts to decline just a little bit. Just a little bit? I think so. That would be frustrating. Um, and the, actually, the, the crew that found Amanda Eller is actually looking for another missing man. Um, let's see here. Uh, police and fire personnel were searching the area of Kapilaau Ridge Trail of Noah Mina uh, for a man named Noah Mina who was last seen on May 20th, according to a Maui police missing person release. Eller was lost in a Hawaiian forest uh, for 17 days before she was rescued by Cantaloupes, which is, uh, one of, uh, w- which is one of Amanda Eller's friends, who is also the, the, who led the charge of the search and rescue. Um, and now Cantaloupes is now organizing for a new search team to find this Maui man. She's just not too far away. What's going on in these forests? I know I'm going to be visiting Maui, and I don't know if I want to go visit these forests if they're having voices call them into them and and render them lost. Um, so Maui lets uh, – this is actually a message from Cantaloupes. He's, he's posting it on the Facebook page announcing for the new surge. He says, let's keep the momentum going, uh, the motivation going, and the love and support going. The team is recruiting experienced hikers and other skilled people who will be compensated for their time, he said. And a GoFundMe page promoted by Noah's father, Vincent Mina, 
has raised nearly $50,000 in three days. Vincent posted about his son, who call, who he calls Keikai? Keikai. Keikai. There we go. Saying he felt uh, that he left seeking clarity and he has turned to nature to find that safe haven. The post was later removed from Facebook. Uh, Vincent and his family have met the res- with rescuer teams to discuss a search plan, which includes helicopters, according to the GoFundMe page, Kapila'au Ridge Trail, also known as the St. Anthony Cross, and Wailuku is about 18 miles from Makawa'au Forest Reserve, where Ella or Eller was found. So all these people going out there in, uh, in Maui to find themselves and to remove themselves from technology where, you know, if, if this this guy, I, there's a picture of, of him in this story that I'm reading of, of uh, uh, the man in Maui that's that's being uh, reported missing. What is his name? Noah. Noah Mina. He, does, he looks like uh, he's a native Hawaiian. So he's probably familiar with the area and he, he looks like he's, he, he could survive out there on his own. Um, so maybe he doesn't want to be found right now, but that's obviously that could cause a lot of commotion there with all the money that's being raised and all the, all the commotion that's being uh, upheld with all the, with everybody, the community that's trying to gather around to get him. So they, hopefully they can find him. Hopefully it turns out as well as this story about Amanda Eller. Um, it had been more than two weeks that she had been lost in a thick Hawaiian forest and Amanda Eller was at an end. The 35-year-old doctor of physical therapy was at a place where she would uh, could no longer go forward because of the terrain. With the fractured leg and no shoes, she sure wasn't going to go back. The area she found herself in had little to no food. She stayed there for a day and a half, and as Eller's mother and a friend told reporters Saturday as they detailed the rescue, rescued woman's ordeal, she began to resign herself to the dire possibility that she might die there. So she tried to keep her spirits up. She had conquered so much to get to this point. And uh, here's a look at what she did. She picked berries and guava to eat when she could find them. She drank water only when it was clear enough and looked like it wouldn't uh, make her sicker. She took care of a bum knee and a nursed sunburn uh, so bad it got infected. She walked without her shoes, which had been swept away in a flash flood when she was trying to dry them out. And on the 17th day, a helicopter finally spotted her. She popped out into a ravine and they landed nearby. She had to wait for them as they cut a path to her. But after 17 days, a few more minutes were worth it. I'll say so. And, and everybody's ecstatic. And the, the photos of, of her being found and, and actually being able to use a phone again and to, to contact her family, I presume, um, are very emotional and very exciting. And, and it's just one of those lessons you got to take away that to be prepared, no matter how in touch with nature you are or how spiritual you are, you, you got to have one of those tethers with you because you never know what will happen. You, you, you think you'd be prepared enough for it, but you don't. And uh, But what a great story out of Amanda, uh, Amanda Eller out of Maui. And the, the community there is just so great. And I, I have some friends who actually work out there in Maui and, and to experience it firsthand personally while living there on the island is uh, very uh, inspirational and something to take away from from that is uh, be nice to your fellow man. Think about your community. Look out for one another. All that good stuff. And on the other side of the world, there's actually a, a, a huge uh, death toll go- taking place on Mount Everest this year. Uh, at least 11 people have died while climbing Mount Everest. And it's not because of terrain. It's not because of the horrendous conditions of, of actually climbing the mountain. It's actually due to overcrowding. Um, and it's making the difficult conditions on the summit even deadlier than usual. Um, it's become so overcrowded that the sheer number of people trying to th- summit the mountain at once is putting climber safety and their lives at risk. 
A man named Christopher Coolish, a 62-year-old American attorney, died on Monday after reaching the top of the mountain. This brings the known death toll during this year's climbing season, which typically only lasts a few weeks, to 11. The last time 11 or more people died while climbing Everest was during a 2015 avalanche, according to the New York Times. But the latest deaths seem to be the result of overcrowding, not inclement weather. Two related factors have likely contributed to this year's high death toll. Um, and the first is the proliferation of unscrupulous travel companies that take unprepared trekkers onto the summit. The second is that the Nepalese government doesn't have a limit on the number of people who can make the climb. The lack of government regulations and the rise in inexperienced climbers combined are contributing to chaos on the mountain. And, I, you know, you can imagine that the Nepalese government probably wouldn't have too many limits because it's such an impoverished nation over there. They don't they, they rely on these this tourist uh, this tourist activity to uh, fund their their livelihoods out there. So I, I, that's what I imagine why they wouldn't have too many limits on that. All big climbs require some degree of preparation, but climbing Everest in particular, because of this altitude and the elements, requires intense training ahead of time. And once the climbers reach 26,000 feet, they enter what's known as the death zone, an area known for its thin air and freezing temperatures. And according to the Times' 2017 Guide to Climbing Everest, climbers who reach the death zone have been known to suffer from altitude sickness, a lack of muscle control, and even hallucinations. These dangers have been lately exacerbated by the number of people who attempt to make the climb. Experienced climbers say the trek is particularly difficult to the, on the Nepalese side of the mountain, since Nepal's government is less stringent about issuing permits than the Chinese government, which controls the Tibetan side of Everest. Now, CNN reports that starting on May 20th, crowds of climbers on the Nepalese side of the, of the mountain were forced to wait in line for the summit and at more than 26,000 feet above sea level. Most people, especially those who are less experienced climbers, can only spend a few minutes at the summit without extra oxygen supplies. And the bottlenecking is making it harder for people to make it down in time. Even when using bottled oxygen, supplemental oxygen, there's only a very few number of hours that we can actually survive up there before our bodies start to shut down, one climber told CNN. So that means if you get caught in a traffic jam about 26,000 feet, the consequences can be really severe. And one climber who spoke to the Times who said he spent $70,000 on his Everest experience and prepared for the climb by sleeping in a tent that simulated high-altitude conditions told the paper he had to step around dead bodies on his way down the mountain. How mind-fuck of a, of a visual can that be? Unbelievable. Another said she watched inexperienced climbers collapse after their oxygen tanks began to run low. She says a lot of people were panicking, worrying about themselves, and nobody thinks about those who are collapsing, she told the Times. But at the same time, helping others could, meaning, uh, could mean putting your own life at risk. It's a question of ethics. We are all on oxygen. You figure out that if you help, you are going to die. Several experienced climbers said the Nepalese government's refusal to regulate who can climb the mountain or how many people can do so at once is putting people at risk. <laughs> I'll say so. The major problem is inexperience, not only for the climbers that are on the climb on the mountain, but also the operators supporting those climbers. Everest is primarily a very complicated logistical puzzle 
And when you have a lot of inexperienced operators as well as inexperienced climbers along with, particularly the Nepal government not putting some limitations in the numbers of people, you have a prime recipe for those uh, for these sorts of situations happening. They have those Sherpas that go up with them too, all these climbers, and they basically guide them through it. So I think there's a Sherpa for every climber. And so these Sherpas are going ahead of people um, around the main, uh, there's, there's a fascinating, I I think there's a fascinating documentary on Amazon about uh, Everest that's on right now. I can't think of the title, um, but they actually follow um, a a team of climbers going up all seven summits and how, how brutal it is to go up and do this. So I can imagine if you don't have any experience and you're relying on your Sherpa to get up there, that is completely unfair to that Sherpa, first of all, because this is their life and they're putting you're putting your life in their hands and they're subsequently putting their lives at risk just to get your touristy ass up there. So you can get your freaking selfie on Instagram. Just ridiculous. Uh, Morton made the climb uh, from the Tibetan side of the mountain. One of the climbers, which unlike the Nepalese side puts limits on how many people can reach the summit at once. Meanwhile, other experienced climbers have called on the Nepalese government to begin limiting the number of permits it's issued and uh, they're going to they're, they're, they're talking about doing it. But there are way more people on Everest than there should be, which is the bottom line. And if you've seen the photos they're, 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 uh it's really impressive to see the amount of people that are actually on the summit because it looks like there's just no room. It looks like the, the, the entire peak of the mountain is just going to collapse or, or there's just going to be an avalanche of bodies. There's so many people just standing there. I mean, it's beautiful. It is absolutely stunning, the view up there. But is it really worth it? Is it really worth it? I mean, $70,000 to go climb a mountain to to not even be guaranteed that you'll survive because there's a bunch of people that it's just a sea of people up there. I don't know, man. Not worth it to me. I'd rather survive and then, then head up to, to Mount Everest and die because of other people that are unprepared, overcrowded. That's just ridiculous. Let's switch gears here to a little more of a positive story. And it's going to start out a little, uh, a little gruesome here for, for a second. So bear with me. But have you ever heard of a baby that was born without its skin? Little Caden Jake Shattuck is now six months old, but was born without the top layer of skin on his entire body. When Jessica Kibler, 20 years old, gave birth to her son Caden 10 weeks before her due date, he weighed a tiny two pounds, seven ounces and had an undiagnosed condition, which meant he was missing 98% of his epidermis, the top layer. That's the top layer of your skin. And as soon as he was born, he was whisked away by the doctors, um, meaning that Jessica and her partner, Jake, who was also 20, had an agonizing nine hours wait to see their newborn. Nine hours until they could touch their newborn or actually see it. And describing the moment they eventually got to meet their son, uh, Jessica uh, said that when the nurses took us into the room to introduce us to Caden for the first time. He was red raw, like a piece of uncooked meat. Jake and I cried, but even the nurses left the room and cried their eyes out because they didn't know what to say to us and didn't know how else to help him. we never seen such a small baby before, and he was covered in bandages. The only skin he had on his body was on his face. That was the 2%. And there's photos of this thing, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to post the links to uh, the, the, the episode details here so you can click over. Uh, but it, it does. It looks like a, a poor little baby who just looks like a, a little sausage of raw meat. It's, it's sad, but the little thing's alive. It's, it's, it's kicking. It's, it's, it's kicking to survive. 
In fact, the baby was so delicate, he couldn't be held for 10 days. And even then, his parents would only cradle him using a mattress. Okay, the story says it's a mattress, but I'm, I'm gathering it's like a pad. I think this is from the UK. They call, like, you know, pads or blankets and mattresses. I'm not quite sure what the difference is there. It's a whole language barrier thing I don't understand. My first reaction was total shock, to be honest, Jessica continued. He was this beautiful, tiny thing, and Jake and I looked at each other silently, not knowing how we were going to take care of him. And we couldn't even lift him properly to begin with because he was in so much pain and required life support. Doctors warned the couple the mystery condition Caden was born with meant he probably wouldn't survive. But the couple vowed they would do everything they could to pull him through. Sadly, however, the complications didn't end there for the little tot. and He has since battled necrotizing enterocolitis. Man, these are some big words. Let's go. Necrotizing enterocolitis, congenital herpes, dermolysis, and bronchiolitis due to his lack of skin and premature birth. So this guy's going to be the sick kid when he grows up, probably. It took six weeks for Caden to finally grow skin, and during that time, he couldn't wear clothes for fear it would tear his fragile little body. And the tiny infant was kept in neonatal and intensive care for six weeks and was finally able to go home at 11 weeks old. And since then, he's admitted to uh, the Warwick Hospital uh, for emergency treatment six times and requires oxygen every time he falls ill. He's also been diagnosed with bilateral deafness of hearing impairment in both ears. This guy's going to have some challenges growing up. But miraculously, however, Caden's epidermis did grow back in January, but it's very thin and fragile and prone to tearing and scabbing. This month, he had his first skin graft, and we'll have at least four more during the next 12 months. Doctors are still no closer to finding out the cause of his unusual condition, and the infant's case is now being investigated by experts. But medical experts originally speculated his skin condition was caused by a sepsis congenital herpes condition, but have since ruled that out and are now testing for countless skin disorders. Whew, herpes, the gift that keeps on giving. But despite his various medical issues, Caden now weighs nine pounds, seven ounces, and his parents say he has never been better. He's so perceptive. He's really starting to take everything in, Jessica says. He laughs a lot or he tries to, but it's hard for him because he's hard of hearing in both ears, so doesn't really know how to laugh properly. But he's got the loveliest smile. He's a very happy baby considering he's a, and he's very content, the new mom added. We don't know how long this will affect him or if this is lifelong, but we're here to look after him and to love him no matter what. Caden means the world to us, and we don't think we could be happier. And there is a picture of the whole family together, and they do look so happy. And to, to have that, that, that near scare, that near-death scare, and being told one thing, and then to turn around six months later and things be um, looking so... It's amazing. It's, I'm, I'm so relieved for the family that they have another chance. I've got a couple of quick hit survival stories here that uh, I want to I want to plow through here real quick before I get to the ooh the oh so juicy one here at the end about uh, a man who gives himself his own appendectomy his appendix were about to burst and he was the only one that could perform this the procedure uh, before I get to that I wanted to tell you about Stephen Callahan this is a man of the sea who found himself in quite the predicament when a whale bumped his sailboat in the middle of the night during a lone expedition Callahan's boat the Napoleon Solo slowly sunk to the ocean bottom and Callahan found himself stranded in his inflatable raft with little water and a small number of provisions. Surviving the blaring sun, battling dehydration, and constant shark encounters, 
Callahan found solace in the Dorado fish that hung around his raft constantly. His doggies, he called them. Seven times he shot flares at passing ships and only to be left in frustration. And after 76 days and floating 1,800 miles, he was finally found by some fishermen who rescued him. But unfortunately, they caught all of his beloved doggies. Oh, my doggies. All those fishies that were keeping me company are now fish food by my rescuers. That's unfortunate. Owen Chase, this actually goes way back. And that this was actually uh, what inspired the, the story of Moby Dick. From the blazing sun to the frightening clouds and thunder to the harsh waters, no person can vouch for the dangers of the sea more than Owen Chase. His singular survivor's instinct was tested numerous times during his tenure as first mate on the whale ship Essex, which launched in 1819 and went on to inspire Moby Dick. Nothing about Chase's voyage went well. After surviving storms that nearly destroyed the vessel, he has barely he was barely able to escape from a small island after a crewmate set a fire as a prank, only for the island to quickly become engulfed in flames. Chase was then tested once more when his ship was destroyed by an attacking sperm whale. A team of 20 men piled into their emergency boats and stuffed them with as many supplies as they could while the Essex took on water, after which the ship sank. And the really bad things began to happen. Now the bad things begin to happen? While stranded at sea, the crew suffered yet another whale attack before finally managing to reach land. However, the crew soon realized the island was barren. While three men decided to stay, the others chose to take their chances at sea. Their supplies soon ran out, at which point the crew resorted to drinking their own urine and eventually cannibalism, slaughtering their companions for nourishment. Even this horrible tactic didn't sustain them for long. When the boat was finally discovered by two passing ships, only five of the 17 men remaining in the boat were still alive. It is said that they were found sucking marrow from the bones of their dead crewmates. <laughs> Red bone marrow before? It's delicious. I don't know about my friends, though. Hey, have you ever watched the movie The Revenant? Uh, apparently, it's based on a true story. Uh, the, the, the man, uh, Hugh Glass is actually the character who uh, Leonardo DiCaprio portrays. And in 1823, uh, Hugh Glass was actually a, uh, he was with a company of fur trappers. If you haven't seen the movie, The Revenant, it is outstanding, by the way. This is the one where Leo DiCaprio gets uh, mauled by a bear and then he crawls himself out of, uh, out of the forest. And I'll, I'll tell you the story, the rundown here again. But this is what ultimately gave Leo his, uh, his Oscar. And it was an outstanding movie, if you haven't. Uh, had a chance to to check it out. So through the American wilderness in 1823 would be treacherous uh, as a fur trapper. So first Native American attacks pushed the men from their path along the Missouri River. 17 lives had already been claimed by these ambushes, which has also left glass with a gunshot wound in the leg. And there was no telling when another attack was coming. This was, this part was in the movie. When they get attacked by, by uh, Native Americans, it is brutal, this movie. You got to check it out, The Revenant. Then while Glass was uh, recovering from these attacks, he was mauled by a grizzly bear who ripped out a piece of his shoulder, tore at his throat, and mangled his foot. By the time his party had managed to reach him and help him kill the bear, they decided that he was a dead man. Now that part wasn't in the movie. The, the, the people didn't come back. Uh, Leo actually ended up killing the bear and burying himself to heal himself. And nobody really came back to find him in the movie. But that's in the, in the true story. That's good to know that they all came back. Uh, with winter fast approaching, the team couldn't afford to stay behind, instead deciding to cut a deal. 
Two of the party members were paid the hefty sum of $80. Whoa, 80 bucks to stay with Glass until he died and to give him a proper burial. However, when five days had passed and Glass was still alive, the pair decided to strip him of his belongings and leave him for dead. Now, part of that is true. Now, now it's all coming back to me. It has been a while since I've seen this movie, but I don't, I don't remember the, 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 the team coming back and helping him kill the bear. But I do remember them coming back to, to watch over uh, uh, the, the disabled Leo, who's nearly on death's door, um, and they ended up uh, leaving him for dead. After Glass had regained, and co- uh, regained consciousness, he had to tend to a broken leg, cuts that went down to the bone, and rotting flesh, bleh, the latter of which he had treated by rolling in maggots, <laughs> allowing them to eat the dead tissue, which is, this is, a, this is a true thing. They do this in the medical industry today uh, to, help, uh, to help a lot of people, mainly people with diabetes, who their, their, their flesh is rotting off of them, and this is a way... To get it cleaned is to actually use these lab-grown maggots to clean them off. It's just, just disgusting, but it works. And uh, he crawled, rafted, and walked through hundreds of miles of dangerous terrain, actually receiving some help from Native Americans along the way. And when he finally found the men who abandoned him, he forgave them and spared their lives before promptly signing up for several more dangerous expeditions. You glass. That guy's a badass. Now, this, this story is very interesting. Something out of cartoons and science fiction movies uh, with a character who gets locked inside a cryogenic chamber or freezer only to be thawed out later, completely unharmed. While it may seem outlandish, there are a handful of occurrences in which people have indeed been frozen only to emerge alive. In this case, in 1999, while on a skiing trip in Narvik, Norway, Dr. Anna Bagenholm, a Swedish radiologist, fell into a frozen stream trapped beneath nearly eight inches of ice with only her skis visible above the surface. While her friends contacted help and did their best to free her, Bagenholm managed to find an air pocket and keep breathing for 40 whole minutes before the onset of circulatory arrest. Neither ropes nor snow shovels could free her until finally after 80 minutes in the... (coughs) 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 Woo! Wow, this story got me all excited. Choking on myself. I feel like I'm 40 minutes before the onset of circulatory arrest. Ah, sorry. Had to wet my whistle. So after uh, after about 80 minutes in the freezing water, a sharp-edged gardening shovel broke the ice and saved the day. By the time the rescuers had uh, pulled Bagenholm out, her heart had stopped beating and her body temperature had fallen to 56.7 degrees Fahrenheit, a record low at the time. Undaunted by this severe case of hypothermia, doctors connected the woman to a bypass machine, helping to recirculate and gradually warm her blood over the course of nine hours until her heart began to beat. Bagenholm's mere survival should be seen as a miracle in and of itself, but her story goes one step further. Not only was she able to survive the ordeal, but she did not suffer any brain damage as the water's freezing temperature had decreased her brain's need for oxygen. And with only some nerve damage and limited use of her hands, she continues to ski to this day. Bam! She's a trooper. Okay, so I'm I'm admittedly a, a skydiving enthusiast, um, but I, I love the idea of having a safety net. I like the idea of having a parachute, so this free fall stuff without parachutes is just nuts. Seen this video circulating around the internet. I don't know if this is real or not, but this guy decides to throw off his his uh, his his parachute, his rig, 
and they're jumping out of a hot air balloon. There's, he's, just, he's with a bunch of guys, and he's at the end, last minute, he's looking at the guys. They all have GoPros on. They're all taping everything, and the guy takes his parachute off, throws it into the basket of the, of the hot air balloon, and he says, I'm done. I'm not going to do this. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna need my parachute. I'm just gonna do this. I'm gonna do this. And the guys that, that are with him are like, "No, don't!" And the guy ends up throwing his parachute off, and it, it starts free falling before him. And then the guy jumps off, and everybody else jumps off to follow him. Whether or not the guy gets grabbed by one of his buddies, or the guy does pulls a uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger from a racer and grabs the 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 parachute and free fall and attaches it to himself to pull the cord at the last minute. I don't know, but th- that's when the video ends. I, I It leaves me asking so many questions and I don't know if it's a fake video or if they just decided not to show the rest of it because of the guy ultimately meeting his demise. But this is just a, a video circulating on Instagram out of all the places. You don't go to Instagram to think that you're going to see somebody nearly die on, on one of these videos, but apparently it, it could be true. I haven't gone to Snopes to see if it's real or not, but I, I, I'm, I'm a skydiving enthusiast, but I would never do something stupid like that. And I don't think that uh, Vesna Volovich was expecting to uh, go do any free falling um, from her job because uh, she was in, in, in January 26th of 1972. Let me spit this out. On Jet Airways, the employer of the 22-year-old Serbian flight attendant, Vesna Volovich, mixed her up with another flight attendant named Vesna and placed her on a flight from Stockholm to Belgrade. And about midway through its journey, the plane exploded in midair, and Volovich and the 20 of, 27 other people aboard the plane fell all the way down to the ground, 33,333 feet below. But unlike the 27 others, Volovich survived. Volovich was fortuitously discovered by a German man who had previously served as a medic during World War II and who cared for her until help arrived. She suffered three broken vertebrae, two broken legs, and a fractured skull. But after 27 days in a coma, she actually survived her nearly six and a half mile free fall. Doctors suspected that her low blood pressure caused her to faint during the fall, preventing her heart from bursting upon impact. What's actually less clear is why the plane exploded in the first place. Now, some claim that Czechoslovak Air Force mistakenly shot the plane down, believing it was an enemy military aircraft. Uh, some included the, including the Yugoslav government at the time, blamed the Croatian uh, terrorist group. But to this day, the true cause remains unknown. But for her part, Volovich actually returned to work for the airline, switching to a desk job, good, smart, on the ground, and in a 1985 ceremony, received her Guinness World Record title for the longest survived freefall without a parachute. And randomly, she was given the award by Paul McCartney. Now, this guy's probably Paul McCartney is probably like the master of ceremonies for this particular case, which is you know completely random in itself. But the fact that she got a re- oh, an award for longest freefall, which she did not intend to do. But she did survive, and thank goodness she did, so that she could receive that award. Uh, now, the next one I got here is, uh, is about a guy named Jan Balsrud. Uh, with World War II raging in early 1943, Norwegian soldier Jan Balsrud and his fellow commandos were attempting to destroy a German air control tower when they accidentally made contact with the shopkeeper, who happened to have the same name as their resistance contact. The shopkeeper informed the Germans, who then attacked Balsrud's boat, and the Norwegians had no choice but to scuttle their own boat, which means, you know, they basically 
they scuttle their ship, which is which means that they 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 sink it, they destroy it, they leave it, they abandon it, and it was contained uh, eight tons of explosives and escape uh, in a small. Then they all escaped in a small emergency vessel. Jeez Louise! Can't put thoughts together this afternoon, man. When the Germans sunk that vessel, Ballsrud and company had to swim through the frigid Arctic water, and uh, he Ballsrud was actually missing one boat too, or one boot, two, and they all made it to shore. Where he uh, he then killed a German officer, but then came the truly hard part: surviving the frozen abyss. For about two months, Ballsrud overcame a three hundred foot avalanche, frostbite, snow blindness, and gangrene while first hiding in a wooden hut, then being laid out on an improvised stretcher in the snow behind a wall to hide from the Germans for 27 days straight. When not hiding, Ballsrud was forced to operate on his own leg with a pocket knife and amputate nine of his own toes in order to save his foot from gangrene. Ah! And then finally, the native Sami people pulled Ballsrud by reindeer-driven sled across Finland and into Sweden, where he recuperated before returning to active duty until the war's end. Now, that guy's a badass. Cutting off his own toes, hiding off in the snow, fighting off gangrene, goes back to fight the Germans. That's the greatest generation for you right there. All right, and now, as promised, the last story of survival here is about a man who cut out his own appendix. Uh, during an expedition to the Antarctic, a uh, Russian surgeon named Leonid Rogozov became seriously ill, and he needed an operation, and as the only doctor on the team, he realized he would have to do it himself. And as the polar winter rolled in, a 27-year-old Leonid Rogozov started to feel tired, weak, and nauseous, and later, a strong pain developed down the right side of his abdomen. Being a surgeon, he had no difficulty in diagnosing acute appendicitis, said his son, Vladislav. It was a condition he'd operated on many times, and in the civilized world, it's a routine operation. But unfortunately, he didn't find himself in the civilized world. Instead, he was in the middle of a polar wasteland. Now, Rogozov was part of the, uh, of the six Soviet Antarctic expeditions. A team of 12 had been sent to build a new base uh, at the Schurmacher Oasis, the Novolazarskaya Station. Man, that, that is one of the hardest words to pronounce. N-O-V-O-L-A-Z-A-R-E-V-S-K-A-Y-A. Let's just call it the station. How about that? It was up and running by the middle of February in 1961. And with their mission complete, the group settled down to set, see out the uh, hostile winter months. But by the end of April, Rogozov's life was in danger and he had no hope of outside help. So the journey from Russia to the Antarctic had taken 36 days by sea and the ship wouldn't be back for another year. So flying was impossible because of the snow and all the blizzards. He was confronted with a very difficult situation of life and death, says Vladislav. He could wait for no help or make an attempt to operate on himself. It was not an easy choice. Rogozov knew his appendix could burst it, and if it happened, it would almost certainly kill him. And while he considered his options, his symptoms got worse. He had to open his own abdomen, take his intestines out. He didn't know if that was humanly possible. In addition, this case, uh, this was the Cold War, with East and West competing in nuclear space and polar races, and the weight of which rested on both nations and individuals. 
the commander, uh, the commander in charge of the Novos, the base. I'm not even going to attempt that word again. Had to get to uh, Moscow's blessing for the operation to go ahead. If my father was to fail and die, it would definitely put a hard hat of negative publicity on the Soviet Antarctic program, says Vladislav. I'm going to pause in the story real quick. Um, because of the, the whole negative publicity and negative spin reminds me of the mo- of the show that's on HBO right now that's, that's documenting the Chernobyl uh, incident and how the Russian government downplayed the severity of, of the, uh, the, of the, the nuclear explosion, the radio, the, 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 the nuclear explosion and the radiation exposure and, and how detrimental it was going to be to the, all the outlying areas and, and how catastrophic it really was. Um, it was just amazing to see how negligent the government was and how they handled it. And if you haven't seen Chernobyl on HBO, check it out. It's only at this point, um, since I've, since I've recorded this, there's only about four episodes out. I don't know how long it's going to go, but obviously it's a one-time series. They're, they're, they're covering a real life issue. Um, but Chernobyl outstanding show on HBO continuing with the story. Rogozov made his decision. He would perform an auto appendectomy rather than die, not doing anything. I did not sleep at all last night. It hurts like the devil, a snowstorm whipping through my soul, wailing like a hundred jackals, he wrote in his diary. Still no obvious symptoms that per- that perforation is imminent, but an oppressive feeling of foreboding hangs over me. This is it. I have to think through the only possible way out, and that's to operate on myself. It's almost impossible, but I can't just fold my arms and give up. Rogozov worked out a detailed plan for how the operation would unfold and assigned his colleagues specific roles and tasks. He nominated two main assistants to hand him instruments, position the lamp, and hold a mirror. He planned to use the reflection to see what he was doing, and the station director was also in the room in case one of the others became faint. He was so systematic, he even instructed them what to do if he was losing consciousness, how to inject him with the adrenaline and perform artificial ventilation, says Vladislav. His son. I don't think his preparation could have been better. A general anesthetic was out of the question. He was able to administer a local anesthetic to his abdominal wall, but once he had cut through, removing the appendix would have to be done without further pain relief in order to keep his head as clear as possible. My poor assistants! At the last minute I looked over at them, they stood there in their surgical whites, whiter than the white themselves. Rogozov wrote later, he was, I was... My poor assistants, at the last minute I looked over at them. They stood there in their surgical whites, whiter than white themselves, Rogozov wrote later. I was scared too, but when I picked up the needle with the Novocaine and gave myself the first injection, somehow I automatically switched into operating mode. And from that point on, I didn't notice anything else. Rogozov had intended to use a mirror to help him operate, but he found its inverted view too much of a hindrance so he ended up working by touch, without gloves. You. As he reached uh, the final and hardest part of the operation, he almost lost consciousness. He began to fear he would fail at the final hurdle. The bleeding is quite heavy, but I take my time, opening the peritoneum. I injured the blind gut and had to sew it up, Rogozov wrote. I grow weaker and weaker. My head starts to pin, spin. Every four to five minutes, I rest for 20 to 25 seconds. Finally, here it is, the cursed appendage. With horror, I notice the dark stain at its base. That means just a day longer and it would have burst. My heart seized up and noticeably slowed. 
My hands felt like rubber. Well, I thought it's going to be end badly, and all that was left was removing the appendix. But he didn't fail. After nearly two hours, he had completed the operation down to the final stitch. Then, before allowing himself to rest, he instructed his assistants how to wash the surgical instruments, and only when the room was clean and tidy did Rogozov take some antibiotics and sleeping tablets. True professional. It was a staggering achievement. Most importantly, he was relieved because he had another chance to live. Uh, Rogozov then returned to his normal duties just two weeks later. Uh, but what if, what if he didn't take it out? He says, uh, uh, one of the doctors that commented on this whole story, he says, I'm, I was a medical student in the early sixties and remember being taught what to do if we found ourselves in the Antarctic with appendicitis, very specific problem to have, but you'll understand why when I continue here, we were told to sit upright and our knees pulled up to our chests. Then if the appendix did burst in this position, we had the best chance of pus draining into the bottom of the pelvis and becoming walled off in an abscess. Rather than infecting the peritoneum, the membrane that covers the, the inside of the abdomen, peritonitis can kill you. We weren't advised to reach for the scalpel. <laughs> that was a, a man named Dr. Duncan Gee. Uh, there has to be one more twist to this extraordinary story, of course. A spell of ex uh, uh, exceptionally bad weather and thick sea ice meant that the ship due to pick them up in April of 1962 couldn't get close enough, and the team thought they would have to spend another year in Antarctica. And uh, as a surgeon, Rogozov was, was concerned about losing touch with the medical world, and on his personal level, he was trapped in the place where he had the most terrible experience of his life. And in his diary, he wrote, more and more often, waves of dull homesickness and hatred of this cursed Antarctica wash over me. How odd it seems that I ever agreed to go on this expedition. All of the exoticism of Antarctica was exhausted within a month, and in return, my, I'm losing two years of my life. My clinic, which I love more than any worldly possession, uh, pleasure, seems as far from here as Mars. And to the relief of the whole team, they uh, were eventually airlifted out, albeit slightly later than planned. They had to be evacuated by single-engine planes. Very dramatically, one of the planes almost dropped into the sea. Well, of course, hopefully it wasn't Rogozov's, Rogozov's uh, plane. Um, Rogozov returned home a national hero. His incredible survival story was a powerful tool for the Soviet propaganda machine. Just 18 days before performing his operation, fellow Russian Yuri Gagarin had become the first man in space, and comparisons were drawn between the two men. It was a strong parallel because they were both at the same age, 27, and they both came from working class backgrounds, and they both achieved something that had not been achieved in, in human history before. They were pro prototypes of the ideal national superheroes, said Vatislav, uh, the son of Rogosov. Rogosov was awarded the Order of the Red Banner of, of Labor, which honored great deeds and services to the Soviet state and society. His bravery was held up as a symbol to the rest of the world. Look at this generation of young people that our system has produced. Young, handsome, smiling, nice, nice fellows, says the Vladislav, but at the same time, made of steel and iron determination. Rogosov, though, shunned the publicity. The day after he returned home, he went back to the hospital and resumed his career. Appendectomies are now compulsory for Antarctic explorers from several countries, such as Australia, and some in the medical profession have suggested the procedure should be given to any future astronauts leaving the Earth to form a colony on Mars or the Moon. 
which is understandable. You don't want to have appendicitis while you're up in space and have to do this on your own. I mean, blood would get everywhere. And it'd be hard to do this in, in zero gravity. Looking back at his father's legacy, Vladislav believes it's one of inspiration. If you find yourself in seemingly desperate situations when all the odds are against you, even if you're in the middle of the most hostile environment, do not give up. Believe in yourself and fight. Fight for life. And I think that's what we can take away from all of these stories, and uh, especially with Amanda Eller's story out of Maui. And, and just don't give up. Don't listen to those voices in your head telling you to go deeper to the jungle without a cell phone. That's not a good idea. But don't give up. Until next time, namaste, bitches. The Rad 